When Michael Piller was writing The Best of Both Worlds, he didn't write it with an ending in mind. He wrote it. He wrote it to be this big lead-up to the big moment and what was effectively the conclusion of Riker's character arc, the ability to man up and make the decision. And obviously Riker's character arc does still continue, even into this very episode, the one I'm covering now, I mean. But in many ways, that was the termination of that point. And then Pillar did so... Well, let me rewind a bit. When Pillar was writing it, he basically wrote it to be his swan song. And in many ways, it shows. While there are a few holes, as I pointed out last week, overall, The Best of Both Worlds was an extremely tight script, which was extremely well-crafted. You could just feel the love and care poured into it. By contrast, this script is nowhere near as good. And I'm sorry, it's just a statement of fact. Now, the two episodes side-by-side do make a nice, cohesive whole. But you can tell how this episode just kind of is so caught up in the moment and so racing through action scenes that it doesn't really have a lot of time for anything interesting script-wise. Again, specifically speaking, on the nature of the writing. It's not like it's completely bad. There's actually some excellent scenes in this one, and it does serve as a nice conclusion. But it also has to be pointed out that You'll notice this episode kind of resolves very quickly, basically in the last ten minutes of the episode. Well, Michael Piller obviously wrote this episode, uh, with some help from a few other people, including Rick Berman. And, (laughs) there's no nice way to say this, he didn't even start working on it until July of 1990. Now, for significance of purpose, uh, the episode Best of Both Worlds Part 1 came out in June. I actually have already forgotten the time. I looked it up last week. Hang on, I'm looking it up again really quick here. Uh, June 18th is when Best of Both Worlds Part 1 went live. Now, if you don't understand the significance of that, that means that almost a month after an episode went live, he hadn't even started working on the script for the follow-up episode. Now, obviously, they'd already been working on several Season 4 episodes at that point in time. As I pointed out, that's the nature of television. They'd been working on Season 4 stuff for most of the break and trying to get everything all ready. Uh, there's a few new sets, new props. If you're paying attention, especially uh, this is especially uh, apparent on the Blu-ray, because the Blu-ray just seamless, seamlessly goes from Episode 1 to Episode 2, as if it is one episode, which does actually work pretty well, I will admit, even though I do like that cliffhanger ending thing. But I bring that up because... You could tell from scene to scene the changes in the lighting, the cameras they use, the quality. Uh, there, there was some redressing of the sets, and they used a lot of new props, which obviously look neater and nicer and cleaner. Overall, season four looks very tidy, neat, and clean. And I know that's a weird way to point it out, but I mention that because season four is basically er TNG. I'm going to talk briefly about season four here before I really get into the episode proper. But before I do that, I'm sorry, let me finish talking about uh, Pillar. And the writing of this episode. So they had already begun work on season four. A lot of the prep work, a lot of the set design, a lot of the casting choices, a lot of the script work, all that stuff. Still hadn't actually started working on a script for the follow-up to their big cliffhanger. Pillar himself didn't even begin thinking about it or writing about it until the ink was drying on the paper and he was now signed on as a contract to return for season four. Which, remember, was something he wasn't sure he was even interested in doing until you know, pretty much right towards the end. Uh, as I just kind of indicated. So, he had no idea what he was doing. And I'm not saying that as an insult. Quite the contrary. Pillar himself was very open and honest in interviews about this. He was just like, I I don't know what to do. I, I, I made the invincible enemy, and now I have to come up with a way to defeat them. Uh, and that is the first thing I really want to talk about. The interesting paradox of the Borg. Now, I've talked about the Borg many, many times, but I'm going to talk about the Borg a lot more in this episode 
than probably any other episode I've ever done of Star Trek. Although we brought it up many times in Voyager and a few times in TNG and a couple times in DS9. This is the Ur-Borg episode in many ways. Because, not only because of the fact that a lot of things about the Borg were really codified in this episode by Pillar, but also because, well, of the paradox I just mentioned. The Borg are interesting, engaging, powerful, challenging, and ultimately, they're just too damn strong. This is a flaw... That's a bad word to use. This is a problem that many writers face across fiction, introducing villains or antagonists that are just too strong. It happens all the time in cartoon shows, in video games, in movies, in books, in live-action television. And the usual way it happens is you introduce a villain and you need to make them threatening. So you make them overwhelmingly threatening. And then you beat them, which completely deflates the point. Star Trek itself is guilty of this exact same problem, not just with the Borg. It's actually one of the biggest problems of the threat of the week. We're super powerful, ah, we're defeated. Now, this can work out. Proper writing and proper crafting can make these elements work. But in general, the biggest problem is from that core point of making them too strong. And the Borg were just too strong. The Borg have so many advantages. They have their adaptability, they have their energy source, they have their advanced technology with regards to being able to access things that they shouldn't otherwise do. They have the nature of assimilation, not just in adding to their numbers, but in learning new things about others and, and being able to use that as an intelligence-gathering uh, capacity. They have the ability to assimilate within seconds. They have the ability to bomb planets with assimilation gas. I mean, for God's sakes, these people have construction abilities, nanite construction abilities that would make total annihilation blush. They have so many advantages. And that's not even getting into the very nature of the collective and how it's, I've said so many times, it's basically impossible to hurt the Borg because you, you blow up three ships and that's neat and all, but that doesn't do anything. You blow up those three ships, and what do you do about the 30 behind them, right? There's always more Borg. There's always more ships. There's always more drones. And they always have the ability to adapt and learn more and more and more to the point where, well, there's nothing really you can do about them long term. This is the problem that happened on Voyager. As much as I do love Voyager, I feel like I just said that. One of the biggest things that aggravates me, I'd say the third biggest thing that aggravates me about Voyager, is the fact that they just nerfed the Borg because they wanted to, them to be recurring, but the only way to do that was to make the Borg much, much weaker. So that's what they did. I say that's the only way to do it. That's actually totally a lie. There's several other ways they could do them. But you get my point. That's the way they chose, was to just nerf the Borg. So they did, and one of the most terrifying, awesome, engaging, popular races in all of Star Trek were turned into the next bad guy of, of the season, you know? Just, just another enemy they have to antagonize every now and again, and that's it. I bring this up, though, because a lot of that boils down to this exact episode. I mentioned that Pillar was approaching this from the perspective of how do I defeat the invincible enemy? I made them too strong. Both problems are stated in his own statements, in his own words. The first is he made them too strong, and the second was he was thinking in terms of defeating them. I know that sounds like a strange thing, but in my opinion, if you're going to maintain an antagonistic force like the Borg, you need to think around the problem, not try to bust through it. This is not a situation of having a big fleet. 
a big fleet is not going to save this situation. Uh, a sufficient force is not going to defeat this. Uh, to use a direct example, in First Contact, if the Borg had sent two cubes, just two, instead of the one, then they would have won, and that would have been the end of it. Just like that. So, <laughs> you can kind of see how... And, and, of course, you're asking, why'd they send one ship? Because the writers wrote themselves into a corner, right? Because the writers couldn't think of a way to get around the Borg, well, and they refused to bring them down, except when they did bring them down. It's very inconsistent. It's, it's very aggravating. But I bring all this up because I do have to give him credits. The sleep idea, what he wanted to do was to use their interdependence against them. According to Pillar himself, he came up with that idea two days before they started filming. In case... In case you missed that, that means that they were already, you know, most of the script was done, most of the teleplays were out, they were already in, the sets were built, people were already getting ca costume and casting calls, and he still hadn't finished writing the episode. But two days he, before he had that idea, and according to Pillar, it's, it's a great interview, by the way, I highly recommend giving it a read or watch. Um, he talked about how it was just, oh, it just all came together and there's this smile on his face, it's, it's awesome stuff. But again, I point that out because I think they made a mistake with the Borg. Now, I'm going to save my thoughts on that for the end of the episode. But I just wanted to get that out there up front and give kind of my reasons for it. I usually like to talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff first before I start talking about the episode proper. There's actually a huge amount of behind-the-scenes stuff in this episode. The exact nature of how they designed the ship and the Borg prosthetics and the makeup for Picard, excuse me, Patrick Stewart... And the, the, the props they used, extensive usage of props, many of which would be used many times over, the, the set design. They were actually sharing some of these sets. I say sharing, that's an inaccurate term. Um, some of these sets for this episode were go then repurposed to be used on Star Trek VI, which, if you remember, was in production at this point in time. They'd reached the point of, by the time this episode would actually be made, of actually working on Star Trek VI. So, you know, all sorts of cool stuff like that. I highly recommend you look into it. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes material in this episode. Most of it's just the nitty-gritty construction of television stuff, which, you know, geeks like me find fascinating. But I don't want to bore you with too much. One tiny thing, though. This episode was nominated for four enemies and Emmys and won two. Making it one of, at least purely in, in regards to Emmy awards, making it one of the highest rated, in, again, in terms of Emmys, episodes of Star Trek ever across all of Star Trek. And as I mentioned earlier, The Best of Both Worlds combined is probably the most popular episode of Star Trek ever, again. And that brings me to a question I didn't ask last week, because I wanted to wait until I saw part two before I posited this. Obviously, and I think I can say this without hesitation, Best of Both Worlds is one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. I don't need to justify that. Uh, Rewatching these episodes really made that, that opinion shine forward for me. But I wanted to ask how many of you, for you, it sits at the top. Maybe just the top of TNG. No shame or judgment if you choose that. That's, that's It's a totally valid decision. It's a great episode. But I mention that because in my personal experience, I've noticed that while this is easily the most popular episode of TNG and arguably of all Star Trek, period, a lot of specific Trek fans have it in the top, like in the top five or the top eight or top ten or whatever, but usually don't have it at the top. There's usually one other episode. I've heard several people say Darmok is above it. I've heard several people say Tapestry is above it. I've heard several people say All Good Things is above it. I've heard several people say Measure of a Man is above it, and so forth and so on. I'm just curious of your thoughts on it, as always.
there's a good thing they do right at the beginning of the episode. Again, maintaining that consistent theme of cost and consequence. According to several people who worked on this, the actors and the writers and the director, Cliff Bolt, all of them went back and basically rewatched the first episode to kind of get them right back into the mindset, that dread and that horror. Now, this episode has no dread. That tone is almost completely absent. Instead, the tone of this episode is very much action. And I know that's a generic way to put it, but it is. It's just action. Go, 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 go. Okay. Okay, we made it. And then there's another tone right at the end, which I'll cover when we get there. As ever, huge props to Ron Jones, though. But as they fire the shot, there's this really high-pitched whine that's slowly increasing in pitch the longer they shoot it. And they mention how this is just causing the Enterprise tons and tons of damage as they're firing it, once again getting across that point that this was not an easy solution, even assuming it had worked. And, of course, it does absolutely nothing. Now, in hindsight, this is what we in the business would call a duh. But that's because we know how the Borg work. You would never do this kind of strategy in the modern era of Star Trek because we know how the Borg work. We know that they have assimilated one of our chief officers, and therefore they know our plans, including the ways to bypass our strategies we had been actively building with that person. But this was new. Remember, Picard is the very first on-screen assimilation ever. And it would be retconned later that the Borg have always been into assimilation and the whole nanite injection thing and all that. Stuff. that that's all later. So this was a new concept. And it establishes a very important theme. Using the strength of your enemy as weaknesses. It's one, probably one of the most important themes of this episode. So they use Picard against them. And what's funny to me is the Borg have this tendency in this episode to be willing to talk. Now, that's actually important. I'll talk more about why later. But, you know, they flat out stop and allow the Enterprise to, to have their moment, even though they could have left at any time. And then once the Enterprise fails, the Borg just leave. The Enterprise is no longer relevant. So we're just going to head on. Moving on. So they have 8 to 12 hours to even be able to get the ship to move. Once again, note how the consequence is still very real and very there. We go back to Murdoch, or excuse me, not Murdoch, uh, Hanson, sorry. Murdoch is the actor, Hanson's the admiral. Uh, they're bringing in about 40 ships. The Klingons are sending ships. They thought about talking to the Romulans to send in ships, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's a nice little moment, and it helps to emphasize the gravity of the scene, and it helps to establish the significance of the event that will happen very shortly, which I will talk about in full. Don't, don't, don't worry. Um... I also want to mention one quick thing. I like Murdoch. His portrayal of Admiral Hansen is good. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's great. I wish it had been Quinn, though. P purely because of continuity. Purely because, for me, if it had been Quinn, it would have been a further establishment and usage of this Admiral who already had a close friendship and you know had respect and trust with Picard. And it would have been a nice callback to having him be the one who has to end up dealing with this whole situation and eventually dies at the Battle of Wolf 359. But whatever. I also want to mention how Shelby is, I don't want to say softened, but more personable in this episode. You can tell that for all her ambition and drive, she's not a bad person. I think that's a good thing to establish, because oftentimes fiction and real life tend to have people who are ambitious at the expense of other things. In other words, being willing to crawl all over other people and hurt other people in order to get what they want. 
Shelby, by contrast, is still human and still cares. She actually has a lot of sympathy and empathy for Riker for what he's going through. Despite the fact that he was her rival in the previous episode, she knows he's going through some crap here, right? There's a wonderful bit, and again, wonderful praise to the actress, where she, uh, Riker has just been received a, a battle promotion, a field promotion to, to captain. And she gives him a look of just, I'm so sorry. Like, you can just see that sympathy in her eyes. It's very good. It's very human. Helps to add to her. It all, they also do another scene, which again is important, because remember, assimilation is new. As we will find out later, the Borg can, arguably even at this point in history, assimilate very, very quickly on the field assimilation. We will also establish that the Borg do basically two types of assimilation. There's the initial, you're Borg now. And then later on, they give you more pieces and more equipment to get you more adjusted to being a useful Borg for whatever purpose your drone happens to be, right? Now, that's actually very logical and makes perfect sense. It's even contiguous with this episode, even though that's by accident, because that wasn't even invented yet. Picard is already a Borg. He's already Lucutus of Borg. The end. However, it is then after all these events that we then show the rest of his assimilation into the collective, the rest of the surgery and adjustments that would affect him and make him into a full drone. And there's one single tear that falls down Picard's eye. Now, that is extremely important. It, it, it's actually established adamantly later. Picard flat out says he remembers everything, and I'll address that point when we get there. But it helps to show right now that Picard is cognizant. This is one of the most horrifying aspects of the Borg. For all the interesting, fascinating, intellectually engaging aspects of the Borg, for the fact that they're not even fully evil, which we'll talk about in this episode as well, the fact of the matter is every single Borg drone is a victim in one manner or another because they are fully conscious and only able to watch. Anyways. So then Jordy is intent... So, okay... I mentioned a couple of things. Uh, Pillar in particular, but also Berman, believe it or not. It's so weird saying good things about Berman when it comes to Star Trek. We're really big on making better use of some of the B-list cast members. Um, Troy, Jordy, uh, Crusher, you know, that kind of a thing. And therefore, we're really pushing for trying to get them more presence. This is actually shown, as I pointed out, back in Best of Both Worlds Part 1. This is kind of shown in 2, but you'll notice Jordy's almost totally absent. He basically has one scene to himself. And in that scene, he's off by himself, basically with like a, a random extra in the background, and isn't on camera with anyone else at the same time. That's because those scenes were filmed completely separate. LeVar Burton was actually in the hospital for surgery during filming for this. They obviously had to work around that. They didn't want to just axe Jordy out of one of the biggest episodes uh, ever. So they did what they could. I only point it out because I never noticed that back in the day. I noticed it on the DVD, but then again, by then I had access to, you know, the magazines and, and the behind the scenes and all that stuff. But I'm not sure if I would have ever noticed if not for the fact that it was pointed out to me. So they do a pretty good job of editing it. So there's a good scene pretty much immediately after that between Riker and Shelby. I once again point out that Shelby and Riker have a, a lot of really good chemistry together. They really do. In fact, he has a line which I wrote down here. We don't have to like each other to work well together. And I like that. I am... I walk a bit of a tightrope when it comes to writing and writing preference. It is my opinion that drama is a good thing when done properly, carefully, and in moderation. In other words, if you have a cast of five people or eight people or 20 people and they all agree with each other all the time, that is not dramatic. 
Now, you can still do stories with that kind of a thing, but there's going to be issues with that. You need people to disagree. They don't need to be artificial drama. It doesn't have to be exaggerated. It doesn't have to be drama. Like, you know what I'm talking about there, right? But there does need, in my opinion, there does need to be some human disagreements. One of the most amazing and fantastic things about human society is the fact that we disagree and that we can disagree and still respect each other, still work together, still care about each other, still like each other. It's one of the most fascinating and fantastic elements of human existence, in my opinion. And I know people disagree with me on that. And I love the idea of Shelby and Captain Riker. And it makes me all the more sad that we never got it. I'll talk more about that later. Again, I want to kind of address the season four stuff after the episode, so we'll get to that. So once again, we see a little bit of the Jaws effect. Now, I mentioned they got a little bit of a extension on their budget as a consequence of the cliffhanger and the fact that they were willing to be given leeway. That's a good thing, because they blew a lot of their budget on this episode. So much of it, in fact, that it would cause issues for some aspects of the rest of the season until the numbers started coming in and they started seeing how well season three and four were doing as i've mentioned for before season four and five are basically the hallmarks as far as number wise for the show and for star trek ever and so as a consequence they were willing to stretch the budget significantly more than they would however stretching it to the point of being able to show the battle of wolf 359 was not possible there's a reason they were so adamant about showing pieces of the battle of wolf 359 over an emissary because they had never been able to do that because of budget reasons. But by the time DS9 was being made, budget had stopped being an issue for the most part. So, yeah, do it, show it. And we finally get to see some of the nightmares of that episode. Or of that event, excuse me. Anywho. So, I, I'm sorry, I'm not actually at Wolf 359. I swear I'll stop and talk about it when we get there. It's just, I mention this because one of the first things we hear is that they've engaged the Borg. And then we get the distress signal from Admiral Hansen. And he's talking about how they're going to regroup, and the, the signal just cuts off. And it's like, okay, I guess we'll have to see how things are going once we get there. And remember, the, the Enterprise is 8 to 12 hours behind everyone else, ignoring travel time. So they are way the hell behind. Shelby gets promoted. I'm not sure what I think about that. Again, I, I do like her dynamic with Riker. I, I just think it's a shame, because Worf looks good in red. I know he does. I've watched Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I'm not actually sure when Where the Warrior is coming out in relation to this episode. I haven't started working on the DS9 stuff yet for the beginning quarter of 2019 yet. So it'll be interesting to talk about that because from my perspective, that's going to be a couple weeks from now. From your perspective, it might be tomorrow for all I know. Anyways, so Guinan, there's a really, really good scene. There's a really good scene where Riker comes in and looks at the chair. He doesn't sit in the captain's chair. He just stands in his usual spot, actually, and looks at it and says, what would you do? And there's, of course, just an empty chair there. Then Guinan comes in and basically forces herself onto Riker, which is good. He needs this. She sits down in the chair, of course, amusingly, visually ironic. And I, I, I have so many good things about to say about that scene. I don't even know if I could properly say it. She kicks Riker in the ass which he kind of needed, actually. It's something that he required, not just because of the whole, you know, oh, I, I'm trying to live up to Picard's legacy, but more to the point, because Riker doesn't really think they're going to win this. As Guinan points out, she says it in a different way, but if, if you are in a defeatist mindset, you are more likely to be defeated. And that is Riker right now. 
and that is most of them. And that's valid. They're fighting the Borg. As is actually established later on, Q himself states this outright, if not for Riker and his and this little pep, pep talk from Guinan and a few specific circumstances, this would have gone extremely badly. I'll mention that later too. So she needed him to realize reality, that this is an awful situation, but that Riker does not need to make it worse. And then she has a line which has stuck with me my whole life. What we have is beyond friendship and beyond family. And I will let him go. Something about that line has always struck me as very important and very impactful and has probably in many ways defined the whole concept I have of chosen family. Uh, you know, those truly close to me. It's an extremely small group. But those people, I would consider them beyond friendship and beyond family. I haven't had to let them go yet, so that's cool. I hope to die before all of them. Or never. One of the two. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I'm still working on the nanotech. It's taking forever. Oh yeah, quick aside. I love how they have to explain what nanites are in this episode. I just find that funny. Since later on, nanites or nanomachines would become so prolific, it would just be a buzzword. But anyways. So, there's also a, bit, a small hint in that scene between Guinan and Riker about the fact that Guinan has experience with assimilation. Now, obviously, that was not intended. Remember, at the time, this was the first assimilation, Picard. But at the same time, historically speaking, from an in-character perspective, it's extremely likely that Guinan and some of the other Elorians knew people who were assimilated and had to deal with the reality of that. That makes sense. And thus, we can presume that a lot of what Guinan is saying is from personal experience. She even flat out says, they didn't kill him. No, they did much worse than that. They took him from him piece by piece. Then, 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 Wolf 359, at long last, the apex moment of all of Star Trek history, arguably. Although, that might be overstating it a little bit. But it's definitely one of the big moments in all of Star Trek history. Like, if you were to bullet point Star Trek history, the Battle of Vol 359 would be in there. 39 ships. Gone. This is huge for many reasons. Um, first and foremost, the obvious in-character reasons. This is the incident that forever changed Starfleet. This is a battle that would still have its echoes felt when Deep Space Nine ended, which was effectively, you know, basically the end of Star Trek, at least to date. The Picard show is coming out. As of me recording this, the Picard show, we don't even know details about it, so maybe that'll follow up on that a little bit. And yes, I know the movies kind of happened a little bit after Deep Space Nine, Nemesis in particular, but really, this the impact of this was felt throughout all of Star Trek up to, or I should say, following these events. This was something that forever changed the Federation. This was something that forever showed them the nature of what kind of militarization Starfleet would need. This is when they really started pushing for the projects that previously had been just kind of meandering along, and as was mentioned in Deep Space Nine, had actually lost interest in funding, like the Defiant Project, into being something that was now a top priority. I've also always personally believed that Section 31, uh, or is it 39? I think it's 31, which has been around since the old days, we know that from Enterprise, really started to crank things up after the battle for Wolf 359, that this was now a situation in which the Federation needed every edge. And I think that's one of the reasons they were willing to operate so openly during the Dominion War, because they saw the potential of another Wolf 359. 
But this is also the moment that would personally affect many individuals, the most obvious being Cisco and Picard. But we will be seeing impacts from individual people who are impacted by this battle throughout the rest of Star Trek. This even affects people over in Voyager. Which brings me to my next point, the out-of-character perspective. This has never been done before. As I actually already mentioned by now over in Deep Space Nine in the episode... Um, Dias Cast, I believe. I can never remember which one's which. I'm pretty sure it's the Dias Cast. In that episode, they had an entire fleet of warbirds and Galar cruisers, and that was like a huge fleet. It was, it was actually the biggest fleet at that point in history. There's actually three times this has happened across Star Trek where they've increased fleet size. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but anyone who's followed Star Trek, especially as it was coming out, knows what I'm talking about. Back in the day, it was usually one ship. Occasionally, it was two. And most battles, most space stuff, happened between a couple of ships. Maybe occasionally in the TOS they would reference a few other ships in a squadron. So like, you know, about 7 to 11 other ships total. The idea of an actual fleet of ships, like the 39 ships at Wolf 359, was unheard of. It had never been done before. And the same thing happened in the Dias cast, which I hope that's the right episode. I'm hoping that... Oh, actually, I can check right here, because it's the next episode I'm coming. Yeah, it's the Dias cast. I'm right, I'm right. Anyways, so it was kind of a big deal because we'd never seen this level of devastation before. To the audience, to the viewer, this was the biggest hit the Federation had ever taken. And what's funny is if you sit back and think about it, historically speaking, this might be the single most damaging singular battle that the Federation has ever had up to this point in time, even from an in-universe perspective. To lose 40 ships in one conflict without any gains on the enemy? That's beyond devastating. That's a complete curb stomp. And I mean that in all the horrible luridness that that term implies. The Borg curb stomped the Federation, and it was bloody and horrible. It also, in many ways, paved the way for the increased militarization of Starfleet, which I already mentioned which would also pave the way for increased security of Starfleet, which is funny because we still have pathetic security from this point onwards. I mean, Rascals is after this point in time. But we also have Homefront after this point in time. Or not Homefront, that's the wrong episode. Shoot, what's that episode name? I'm sorry, give me one moment. I want to reference it specifically, and I don't remember the episode name. It's in Season 4, I'm almost positive. In fact, I know it's in Season 4. Give me just a moment, please. It is Homefront. I'm right. Homefront and Paradise Lost. I was right. Those episodes were, again, in many ways, a direct follow-through of the events of Wolf 359. The only reason that that kind of military coup, for security reasons, with good intention, could have happened is because of this devastating loss. Because this was the wake-up call. And this is now a new era. From this point onwards, we have officially entered the next era of Star Trek. For good and for bad. So, the Borg being willing to talk is almost funny. <laughs> the fact that they're willing to stop and chat really amuses me. Like, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, you do want... You, you, I did trust you. Okay, well, if you're willing to discuss terms for, ne for negotiation, um, terms are irrelevant, but you can be assimilated. Would you like to be assimilated? Oh, you wouldn't. Well, unfortunately, I'm the Borg. I technically have a charisma of zero. So, you're going to be assimilated. That's the that's negotiation. Any questions? I don't actually care about questions. Questions are irrelevant. 
the view screen that Locutus has there is really strange. But I do like this. This is the one true weakness of the Borg, the one consistent weakness of the Borg in all their portrayals, their inability to be ingenuitive. Now, that's very important the way I say that, because the Borg are adaptive, but the way they adapt is they specifically look at what's being used against them, and they adapt to that, or they take it for themselves. In other words, the idea is basically that the Borg cannot invent. If the Borg were left in a vacuum and there was no one to interact with them, the Borg would stagnate forever because they would be unable to adapt. There's nothing to adapt to. Make sense? They are fully dependent on external resources. In many ways, I don't know if this is going to sound like a weird thing to say, they're like human children. In other words, a human child left in a bubble will be a horrible, sad, terrible thing. Feral children are a real problem, unfortunately. But my point being, they will not grow up. They will not actually develop properly. They will stagnate and, in many ways, descend. It's the same thing with the Borg. They need external influence to move forward. So Riker, quite intelligently, uses that against them. He knows what they know. But he also presumes, correctly in this case, that they will not take any further steps. He, they know their tactics, so when they see those tactics being used against them, they're like, okay. And it's, it's this whole brilliant thing, really. Because they use the exact same strategy that was suggested in the exact same way to do the exact same thing. Then they divert it slightly, pulling their attention to the new thing, adapting to the new stimuli. And both of these are smokescreens. They do all this effort. They do the, the split thing and they have the, the, the battle section fight. By the way, quick aside, did you know this is actually the last time uh, not until Star Trek Generations, the movie. So in other words, the last time in the show that the Enterprise uh, and the, the saucer section and the battle bridge de-docked uh, de from each other. I didn't actually know that until I was researching for this episode. It's also the first time it was established that shuttlecraft have personal transporters on board. I find that funny because I've accepted that as fact for so long. Here we are season four and that's finally been established as fact. But a lot of going back through TNG has been discovering how weird it is, these things I consider normal facts about Star Trek, how late they were invented in, in Star Trek history. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. Remember, the Obsidian Order doesn't even exist at this point in time. <laughs> or the Tal Shiar. Or a lot of things, actually. Bajorans don't exist at this point in time. Anyways, so... <clears throat> The, the, they, use, they, send, they send the battle bridge and they send off the saucer section and all of this is just one huge smokescreen by doing what they expect and then subverting it once in one direction specifically to get that shuttle in there to grab Picard or I'm saying this wrong to grab Locutus and then get out quick side note I want you to keep in mind in the back of your head notice they try to destroy the shuttle as it's escaping but all of this was to capture Locutus. And I say that very specifically because this was not about rescuing Picard. That is the uniqueness of this strategy. The Borg have used the strength of the enemy against them. This is Riker attempting to do the same thing, to use Locutus against the Borg. It is actually very brilliant in its own right. And to be perfectly blunt, it's really the only strategy he probably could have had other than ramming the cube, which, let's be honest, might not even work. So, that's awesome. Then the Borg ship leaves. That's never explained. It's one of the weird little plot holes. The Borg ship just leaves Locutus there, even though the Enterprise is basically helpless before the cube. Cube is just like, fine, whatever, let's go assimilate Earth, bye. Despite the fact that they spent a lot of time and effort getting Locutus, it's, it's a strange move for them. It's not, they're not even disconnected from him. 
The best fan explanation I've ever heard is that they decided, okay, well, now we have a Borg drone on board the Enterprise, so that's game. All right, we got the Enterprise now. Peace. Not an invalid perspective. As I mentioned earlier, three drones could have crushed the entire Enterprise by themselves earlier if they'd chosen to. So, O'Brien gets a lot of screen time towards the end of this episode because LeVar Burton was in surgery. It's nice to see O'Brien, though. He's cool. Um, he doesn't get a lot of characterization stuff. His lines were basically written out of the episode for the most part. But this is the first time we start discussing the motivations of the collective, of the Borg. Now, I've talked about that extensively, especially over on Voyager. Remember, the Borg are functionally not evil in terms of intent. It can be very much argued that the Borg are evil in terms of action, in terms of result. But there is no maliciousness there. There's no malevolence there. There's no desire to hurt or harm. or There's not even a degree of selfishness. It is all about their desire to help others. We are the Borg. <laughs> their, their concept of assimilation is legitimately to do the betterment of other species to add their, their culture and their technological, this cultural and technological distinctiveness to their own, to further everyone's goal towards perfection. And all of that motivation and all that characterization of the Borg came from Michael Piller in this episode when Lacutus actually has two discussions with others about the nature of the Borg and what they want and why. It's a fascinating thing, and I'm very glad Pillar added that, not just because it gets expounded on later, but because it makes the Borg far more interesting. Even a giant hive-minded thing needs a motive, a reason why they're doing what they do. And this is that motive. This is for your benefit. And there's just something that adds to the terror of it, knowing that they approach you, this inescapable, ever-encroaching wall is doing so, because it really believes that it's the best for you. What I always find funny, if I can segue for just a second, is I believe with total certainty that if the Borg did not forcibly assimilate, as Data says that they conquer, I think if the Borg offered people to be assimilated as an option, that people would accept that. Not everyone, of course. Obviously, I wouldn't, for example. But I bet you money that there would be people, even in real-life humanity right now, who would sign up, who would pay to be, to be a drone, to be a part of the collective. Food for thought. So, I have one other side note to talk about here. The Mars defense perimeter goes and attacks the cube, based on some submarine models from uh, Hunt for Red October. They die in seconds. Like I, I, I thought about counting, but it's like two seconds. The Mars defense printer is wiped out without the cube even slowing down. And that's an interesting... I, I know this is going to sound like a strange thing to talk about, but unfortunately I have to, because that is an interesting examination of human nature. See, here's the thing. I had a long discussion with a couple friends of mine. This would have been back in, like... Eighth grade, I think, something like that. Well, after this episode had come out, we were talking about uh, this episode and the nature of that exact thing. One of my friends held true that what they did was right. Not, not just correct, but the, the fundamentally right thing. That they refused to bow. They refused to be assimilated. And they fought back against something that they knew they couldn't fight. But it was the motive for doing that that was important. And another friend of mine was arguing that what they did was actually very stupid because all they did was throw away their lives for nothing. They should have either run, because it's not like they even bought them time, 
or they should have just accepted assimilation or something. At least accepting assimilation might have slowed down the Borg. It was an interesting and fascinating debate. This is back in eighth grade, I want to remind you. I point that out because a couple of years ago, uh, Sci-Fi Debris did his own uh, opinionated review on The Best of Both Worlds, and he brought up this exact same topic. I point this out because I am going to talk about this exact same topic, but I just wanted to make it clear I'm not copying sci-fi debris. I've been thinking about this for a lot longer than I knew he existed, although I think he's older than me, so, you know, whatever. Because that is the nature of that, isn't it? It's the nature of that dilemma. The Mars Defense Force there, there was no good answer, no good solution. If they ran and fled, they might have survived, but keeping in mind the nature of the problem, there's a decent chance that that survival would have been limited. Or not at all, to be completely blunt. It would also have been cowardice. They would have basically been abandoning their home and their charge in the service of the pragmatic decision to try and stay alive, or the selfish decision to try and stay alive. However, the cold logic of the situation is unyielding. The hard, simple math cannot avoid this situation. And that math says that advancing wall will barely notice your presence as you flail against it. Now, obviously, the, the human history has shown many, many times that an advancing wall of doom is not always as invincible as it looks, right? I mean, I, you could come up with an example. I don't even have to get into that. But this is a little more hard cut of a situation. This is three little attack craft and a cube. There was no hope. There was, there was no salvaging that. There was no fixing that. There was no anything. They're lucky that all it did was destroy them and moved on, because it could have done much worse to them. So which is correct? What is more correct to do? Or I, I suppose it would slightly be more accurate to say, what is less wrong? To abandon the intangible purpose of principle, or to preserve the nature of... I'm sorry, I'm saying this wrong. To, to abandon the intangible principle of purpose or to abandon the tangible principle of survival. There we go. To flee or to die. What's better? And the best part is, in my opinion, there is no good answer to that question. It is actually a very fascinating human question and an element that a lot of fiction does very well. It's actually funny in its own right because this episode barely even acknowledges the reality of that resistance other than the fact that the entire episode is about that. Everything that they're doing is, is flailing against something that they have no chance against. It is only long shot upon long shots that enables them to do this. But again, I want to attend to that point later. I just wanted to know your guys' thoughts on this. So Data technically becomes part of the collective temporarily when he accesses the net. That is also the one thing that causes the cube to stop and turn around. But I also mention that because... I wonder if that's partially why the Queen was so interested in Data later on. Also probably informed some of their... Well, let's just say that I have a feeling some of Data's developments over the next few years might have been partially as a consequence of that action. Just a little headcanon-y thing. Then there's something that's very interesting. Picard somehow reaches out to Data mentally, manages to break through the Borg collective enough to be able to interact with him. What has never been described in canon is how. 
Now, I know how fiction works. Fiction is usually, with willpower, with enough will, I will break this mind control. I know you're inside there somewhere. I actually kind of hate that trope. I mean, willpower is a real thing, and I do believe it should be used properly, but it's a little overused in fiction, especially in movies. Way overused in movies. I've heard a pet theory about this I wanted to share with you guys. The pet theory is that Q, John Delancey Q, did just the tiniest of pushes in this one. Because you can't tell me he wasn't watching this Borg situation. I like to think that he realized that despite everything, he you know he saw where it was going, and it was going south. So he did this one tiny little push so that Picard would be able to peek out from the Borg Collective and interact with Data. And that led to everything that led to the destruction of the cube and the salvation of the entire quadrant. It's an interesting it's an interesting theory. I don't know how true it is, of course, because it's just a theory. A lore theory. I don't want to get sued. I wonder if a collision really would work. He orders a collision and is about to engage warp and all that. And I could just think of so many ways the Borg could prevent that from happening. I'm not really sure how successful such an action would really be. So, you know, action, 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 and then they win. They manage to turn the interconnectedness of the Borg against themselves and force them into what is basically a feedback loop. As I've pointed out before, one of the Borg's greatest advantages is actually their power generation. The sheer amount of power a Borg cube can generate is immense, greater than most entire planets, fully inhabited planets, can produce. And that's part of how they can do so much of what they do. Not only their ability to move this massive ship, but to move it extremely quickly and very agilely, as well as their ability to adapt. The whole adaption thing is basically putting up a shield of the right exact frequency and type and enough energy in order to prevent the damage from doing anything. That's their whole shtick, right? All that power feeding back into itself is kind of the natural result of that. It's also telling that this has is never attempted again in the history of Star Trek, despite the nerfing of the Borg I mentioned earlier. But I point this out. First of all, the Borg ship explodes. You gotta wonder what they're gonna do with the debris of that Borg cube. That's just something they never really cover, unfortunately. But then the music changes. Now the music has been phenomenal for both of these episodes because Ron Jones is amazing. But then it do, it takes a tone it hasn't yet. And it retains this tone for the entire rest of the episode, all of the coda. It gets on this sort of quiet, sobbing melancholy. Like you can almost feel slow drops of tears gently being squeaked out of someone who has just barely endured tears of relief, tears of pain, and tears of joy, right? It's, it's just, it's very invocative the music, and God, I just wanted to give special praise to that. So then we cut to Riker's future, and Consequence, and a couple other things I want to talk about, because we're basically done with the episode at this point. So Riker, well, he goes back to being a commander, which is ludicrous, especially given they just lost 40 ships, and they're building a whole bunch more. Remember, this is when they really started over-gearing in construction of new Starfleet vessels. They actually mentioned that in this episode, that they will be trying to rebuild the fleet as hard and fast as possible. This is part of why they're able to deal with the Dominion War as well as they are later on. But I've, I've already talked about that. Moving on. The Riker somehow manages to stay commander. That's the first thing I want to talk about. I think that was a mistake. Now... 
I like Jonathan Frakes a lot, actually. But what I would have done, again, I know, I know, TNG is good. In fact, I would go so far as to say TNG is great. But what I would have done is I would have had Riker temporarily leave the show. I would have had Captain Riker go on to command his own ship. I would have kept Jonathan Frakes on board because he's an excellent director. He works well with the cast, and I think he'd be a good addition to the crew. I'd also have him be a semi-recurring presence. I kind of mentioned my idea of this back in Season 3, but rather than the episodes constantly covering, switching over to Riker's perspective, which I still think would be a good thing, it would be nice for him to be basically on the same, let's call it, patrol route that the Enterprise is. So whatever ship he's in, he tends to be on comm semi-frequently with the Enterprise. Just a way to keep Frakes still involved. And then have him kind of drift a little bit further away, a little bit further away as each episode goes by until we get to the episode whose name I can't remember, when Thomas Riker enters the picture. And then I would have had Thomas Riker stay with the ship, stay with the Enterprise. What do you think, guys? Consequently, I also would have loved it if we could have had Shelby come back as a guest star every now and again, especially on the other ship, whatever other ship Captain Riker ends up on. Just food for thought. The consequence of the actions of this episode was something everyone, except for Rick Berman, I can finally start bashing Rick Berman, uh, everyone was really big on. They wanted to really emphasize and showcase that this was not just, all right, we did it, move on to the next episode. And so it was, Pillar fought very, very hard for the final coda scene of when, because the scene right before it is just them, you know, business as usual, and we'll go up to this, and blah, 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 reset button, reset button, this is all great. And then Picard stands up with his tea, and he's got that, he's just got this smile on his face. And the smile just goes away. I love Patrick Stewart's acting, because here you can see, this is someone who was faking it. That smile was fake. He puts down the tea, he goes and he looks out the window, and we see Earth reflected in it. I actually was talking to Lormum just before I started working on this episode about when we first saw this episode, and she remembered this as well as I did. Because I distinctly remember when we first saw this, she just kind of did this and did like inhaled a gasp, and because she was just, oh my God, it was that close. They came that close to it being over. And that scene does a very powerful and, and impacting job of getting across that point, that this wasn't just another threat of the week, that they nearly lost everything. This is something that will be recurred in the future in episodes as well as in uh, some of the novels. Even STO kind of covered this a little bit. Uh, probably my favorite example is the uh, the Enterprise, with which is in the Borg-infested universe in... Uh, I don't remember the name of the episode. It's the one where Worf is jumping dimensions over and over, or excuse me, jumping timelines over and over. You know, the idea that it was it was just centimeters from total failure. And the fact that the episode ends over Earth, well, like it or not, that helps bring it closer to home, pun intended. The idea that we nearly lost Earth to the Borg added another chilling layer to that. And again, the music is so perfect. Season 4 would do many things, good and bad. Many people argue that Season 4 is actually the best season of TNG. I don't know. I will decide that for myself when I'm done going through Season 4. Season 3 certainly was amazing. In fact, even better than I remembered. But also had some worse episodes than I remember, including a lamentation, which just shocked the hell out of me. So, 
I remember reading something uh, Pillar was talking about where he said in regards to season four, well, as much as he believed that season three had some better episodes, he believed season four was overall of higher quality. Again, I don't know if that's true or not. We'll, we'll decide as we go through it. I just thought it's an interesting thing to mention because a lot of the things that they're going to be pushing towards are a lot of the things that would be very memorable for the long-term TNG. And one of those big things is a heavier focus on really bringing everyone to the spotlight and really showing the consequences of action, which, again, we'll talk more about next week. I want to talk about the Borg one last time, I swear, until we get to IHU and then Descent and then Descent Part 2. And I guess that's it. <laughs> the Borg actually don't have a lot of appearances on TNG, which is funny in its own right. Although I'll talk more about that when we get to IHU, because there is, or excuse me, IBORG, not IHU, sorry, I'm an idiot. I will talk about that when we get to IBORG, because it's relevant there. But I, as I said before, I feel like they misstepped with the Borg. I personally, I've already said this on stream, but to make this nice and clear, I would have done one of two separate things with the Borg, depending. One of the things that was a theory for quite a while, actually, was that this was the Borg. That this was it. That this cube was the Borg. This was the totality of their people. I kind of mentioned that last episode, if you remember. Is that the same cube? Well, they kind of left hints of that because they, the writers, want, especially Pillar, wanted that to be kind of an out of the Borg if they wanted to. You know, there was only ever one cube, ergo, this threat is now destroyed forever and the Borg are now erased from reality. Now, for obvious reasons, they decided not to go down that route in the long term. Popularity reasons, as I mentioned earlier. But again, it's an interesting idea and it has a lot of merit in its own right because it means that the Borg were just as terrifying and horrifying and powerful without needing overwhelmingly huge fleets and thousands of cubes and trillions of drones and entire super complexes that are the size of planets. No, instead there was a ship and this one ship was a galactic level threat. And there's something interesting about that, especially the way it was constructed. This would also mean the Borg are basically erased from Star Trek history and would not really be able to be a part of it in the future unless you wanted to do something with that debris field I mentioned. You remember I mentioned that? Remember I said to remember that? Because if you still wanted to bring the Borg forward despite the fact that it was the one ship, well, I mean, the obvious solution is to go the same route that Regeneration did over an Enterprise. Well, there's a frozen drone or a bit of, dro of Borg tech that Borg tech gets working, and, well, there you go. That's the end of that. Because even a single drone is incredibly dangerous if no one knows how to deal with it. So the idea of some of this tech getting into the wrong hands, Romulan, excuse me, Cardassian, you know, Dominion, there's a lot of different directions that could have gone. Or, you know, Section 31 doing something with this, or maybe it just starts activating on its own, or maybe they're trying to study it in the wrong direction and they start using it for themselves, and it's not actually the Borg that are the threat, it's the humans who actually want to be Borg, you know, kind of a cooperative threat. You know, there's a lot of directions you could have gone with that, and still kept the Borg just as terrifying and powerful as they were, just confined to that one cube. The other thing would have been a lot more difficult to pull off, but I think would have been a lot more satisfying for me personally, personally. What if the Borg never stopped being a threat? Now, you could say they never did, not counting Voyager. But what I mean by that is, what if this one cube was here, and as they take it out, we see kind of a repeat of conspiracy. A signal is set out. And what if for the next several seasons of episodes, the Borg are a constant backdrop to basically everything? That while they're going through their other episodes and their other issues, there is a recurrent underthread 
of of this of this evolving threat and plot of the Borg encroaching upon the area, the rest of the cubes showing up, the rest of the ships approaching, and how most of what the out outlying elements of the Federation and the Klingons and the Romulans can do is basically just down to survival. Now, obviously, this would only work if you would have some way to defeat the Borg, but interestingly enough, Voyager gave us a way to defeat the Borg. So hear me out. The thing is, this would have made the Dominion War very interesting, because the Dominion have no more interest in the Borg than the Borg have in the Dominion. But the two would have definitely been antagonizing each other. Now, I think the Dominion War was written very well, but I do think it could have been written better. There's simply too many times, as was pointed out by one of my viewers actually at one point, I doubt he's watching right now, Sile dear, but um, it was pointed out that there's too many times where the strategy and tactics they use are just dumb. And the Dominion could have, and arguably should have, won the Dominion War. They just didn't, because they were so overconfident, because they, had, they were so overwhelmingly like, oh, I mean, we just walk over everyone we need to, so why even bother? Even though they could have crushed the Alpha Quadrant uh, pretty early on, let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, think about how long it took them to finally mine the, the frickin' wormhole, right? Anyways. Imagine if one of the background reasons why the Dominion don't just sweep over the rest of them is because they're busy trying to deal with the Borg and functionally failing at it, you know. And thus, a part of their desire to take this area actually becomes far more personal. Not for the conquest. It stops being about the conquest of the Alpha Quadrant and starts being far more about the conquest of the Alpha Quadrant that gets them their founder back, Odo. We could have rewritten it so that their motive was not the conquest of these solids, but the reclamation of Odo in the endeavor to try and salvage their species in the wake of this slowly encroaching Borg threat that has gotten so bad by this point, by the time the Dominion War starts in like season five or whatever of DS9, that the, 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 most of the forces of the galaxy are basically facing the end, defeat. And while this is going on, Voyager runs into the episode Unity, and the cooperative is introduced into the fray. And the idea of uh, uh, Unimatrix Zero, which, as I pointed out, was actually a crap episode, but the original idea of Unimatrix Zero, of a, of a drone revolution inside the collective, of a new collective, the cooperative, that's how you defeat the Borg. That is, in fact, how they did defeat the Borg over an STO. That was the final defeat of the Borg, was because, because the, the collective basically was replaced by the cooperative, and the cooperative was far more diplomatic, and therefore they were no longer really an enemy, a threat, a villain. It was an excellent and, in my opinion, brilliant way to write around the paradox of the Borg. So I would have gone in that direction. Have TNG, and D have TNG build up to this so that by the time DS9 starts... This Borg thing is already a problem in the background. Now, DS9's out in the boonies, so they don't have to deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis like TNG did. But at the same time, there would be reports, background elements. DS9 was really good at that kind of background flavor, right? Little bits and pieces. Oh, we just lost in contact with this other colony, or this fleet is, not, is now missing. We're not sure what happened to it. Little stuff like that. Dominion War happens. Dominion are fighting the Borg. Focus on Odo, focus on Odo. Uh, what You Leave Behind comes around. Terrible, heartwarming episode. Voyager comes frickin' back home before the end of the episode, and the cooperative is now the method by which you actually finally... Season 7 could have been... Imagine if they came back at the end of Season 6 with the cooperative. And now Season 7 of Voyager is all about concluding the Borg threat. Not defeating them, 
like Pillar tried, Pillar tried to do, but by removing them as an obstacle. What do you guys think? I, as ever, really look forward to your guys' thoughts and attention, and I look forward to you guys telling me of how awful my ideas are and how they'll never work. Love you guys. Have a good one.